Hey, what's up? This is John from Seether wishing you a very Merry Christmas on Podkist. This is Bruce Kulik, and I want to wish you all the very, very happiest holiday season this year. Be well. All right, Kiss Army. You wanted the best? You got the best. Now close your eyes. You're about to be podcasting. Hello, and welcome to your podcast. This is Gary Schaller, and with me is Ken Mills. Hi. And we have two great guests tonight for a roundtable discussion to bring us into the Kissmas season. We've got our buddy Joe Casey, who's an author of many great comic books and also co-creator of the fabulously successful Ben 10 and Generator Rex cartoons. Joe, welcome. Aloha. And we have Bill Starkey, the commander-in-chief and founder of the Kiss Army. Bill, welcome. Merry Kissmas. Excellent. So Merry what, Christmas to you too, Bill. And to you guys as well. And what I wanted to do to start it off is to talk uh, a little bit about the 35th anniversary of the KISS Army, which just passed, I think, late November, if I'm not mistaken. Bill, you've got some stories to tell. Is that right? Yes. Um, there's a KISS fan by the name of Susan Dinkle, who is the news anchor over at my hometown, Channel 10 Terre Haute, who happens to also be a diehard just like one of us. And I had contacted her about doing something special for the 35th anniversary. And uh, originally I had contacted a few people in Terre Haute and didn't get any responses until I got a hold of Susan and she was able to use her clout to uh, bring it all together. And it just so happened that the top classic FM rock station was also affiliated with her television station. So that made that whole thing come together real quickly and, and come off really well. And we have some audio from some of the day's events. There's KISS with Love Gun. For the KISS Army 35th anniversary radio celebration, we have the KISS Army General himself in studio this hour, Bill Starkey. We also have the mayor of Terre Haute, Duke Bennett, and, and you've got a special proclamation that uh, we're going to go ahead and let you read here today. Okay, thanks. It's great to be here on the uh, 35th anniversary of the KISS Army uh, celebration we're doing, so I have a proclamation I'd like to read. It reads as follows. Whereas KISS has been a staple in popular rock culture since the mid-'70s, and whereas KISS has united millions across countries and continents for over three decades, and whereas KISS has influenced other artists to creatively take chances while still listening to their fans, and whereas KISS has changed with the times to remain popular while still keeping things that have made them very successful, and whereas KISS has provided the Wabash Valley with eight great concerts dating back to 1975, more than any other popular music group. And whereas KISS has recognized the city of Terre Haute, Indiana in numerous publications and media for 35 years as the birthplace of the KISS Army, the name by which all KISS fans are identified. And whereas KISS has taught all of us in the KISS Army to stand up for what you believe in, no matter what others might sell you. Now, therefore, I, Duke A. Bennett, Mayor of the City of Terre Haute, do hereby proclaim Sunday, November 21st, 2010, as Kiss Army Day in the city of Terre Haute, Indiana. Oh, very good. And now all we got to do is get you to join the Kiss Army. You can do that at kissonline.com. All right. <laughs> In the studio, we've got Bill Starkey, the KISS Army General, or I've been corrected now. What is your official title? Commander-in-Chief. Commander-in-Chief. Uh, on the phone line, I, I hope he's still there, we've got, should be Paul Stanley. Hi, Paul. 
Hey, how are you? Great, man. Thank you for calling in today. You know, you caught me by surprise yesterday. I know, but, you know, I, I wanted to be a part of this so much that uh, I... Uh, didn't want to forget about it, and I looked after we spoke, and I went, "Yeah, it was, it was supposed to be today." So here I am again. Yeah, I'm raking. I'm raking leaves in the yard, and I look down at my cell phone, and I don't recognize this number, but I'll answer it. Hello, and he says, "Ed, Paul Stanley." I'm like, uh, "Hi, Paul. <laughs> How are you?" I wanted man? to help you rake leaves. <laughs> <laughs> You're certainly welcome to do that as well. Uh, the other guy you hear uh, is Bill Starkey, who I believe I know, you know. I am. I just stood up at attention and saluted. <laughs> This is you know, already. It, it's you know, look what what Bill Starkey did, you know, with Jay, and you know, particularly is is unprecedented in rock and roll. What what they did, like like any great great leaders, is, is they took all these individual voices that weren't getting heard and rallied them into an army, and uh, they coined Kiss Army, you know, the the title of the Kiss Army, and and uh, here we are. You know, 30-plus years later, and, and the KISS Army has, has grown into the largest volunteer army in the world. And there's nothing more powerful than a volunteer army. And we're awfully proud to have that have started right here in Terre Haute. Now, other, other bands have fan clubs, but there's only one army and, well, uh, and still going strong. Well, you know, every other fan club or whatever you want to call it or the fan devotion is measured by how it measures up to KISS because... Everybody knows there are no fans like KISS fans. KISS fans in the beginning fought for the band. And I don't mean, you know, just verbally, physically. You know, it wasn't the most popular thing to be to be a, a KISS fan. And, and people draw, you know, drew that line in the sand. So um, here we are at this point, and, and the KISS army is synonymous with what um, any kind of affiliation with a, a band should be. And, and to this day is the, the, the benchmark. I mean, the bar was set high and nobody's been able to reach it. Now, do you remember in 1975 when you came to Terre Haute to play at the Holman Center? Yeah. You know, the funny thing, uh, coming from New York City, is Terre Haute uh, sounded like some place in France. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we, we didn't even know how to pronounce it. And, uh, you know, the, the reception we got and the response we got was like a victory celebration. Here, here's all these, these people who went to WBTS and, and said, hey, you either play Kiss music by, you know, and, and set a deadline or we surround the building. And everybody thought that was very funny until it happened. Yeah. Well, so, uh, you know, com coming to Terre Haute was, was the beginning of a, a very, very long and, and um, you know, fevered and, and powerful relationship. You know, we, we saw Bill recently, and, uh, you know, he, he, he belongs on Mount Rushmore. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if anybody can put Bill's face on Mount Rushmore, it's the Kiss Army. So don't don't put that idea in his head because he'll probably push for it. So Well, you know, I mean, he, he's obviously got a, a head made out of stone because he, he, you know, he, he pushed for something that seemed impossible. So we, we always celebrate him. Now, uh, what has the KISS Army meant to you after all these years? You know, still going strong, still people signing up every day at KISSonline.com. Uh, the KISS Army, what does that mean to you? Well, it, it, it started out so small and, and really turned into something universal. You, you can go to any country in the world and people will tell you they're in the KISS Army. And uh, much like the logo, you, you know, you can go to 
places like the Amazon rainforest, and literally, you'll go see some structure with the Kiss logo on it. I don't, I'm not, I'm not endorsing going to do things <laughs> like that, but uh, it, it's just a testament to, you know, the the fan devotion. But that fan devotion is also based on the band's devotion. You know, we we have maintained a commitment to the fans since the beginning. And although we, we don't always make the right choices, we always make the choices that we think are right. And uh, um, it, it's made for something very, very special. The last great Starkey was Ringo. So, you know, here, here we've, we've got Ringo and Bill. So. <laughs> Gene Simmons wanted to get a little message out to the KISS fans. And it's Gene Simmons calling. Uh, my apologies for not being able to call while you're on the air, but wanted to take a moment to say how proud I am. You guys are celebrating 35 years of the KISS Army, deservedly a classic, classic event. We are proud of not only having played at Terre Haute, but calling Terre Haute as the birthplace of the KISS Army. We've never been shy about telling the world that. And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. All the best. Bill, did you find, even 35 years later, that, um, I don't want to say that people weren't taking it seriously, but I guess what I want to say is resistance or pushback from, from uh, like, the mainstream? Um, what do you mean? Do you mean... Well, I guess it goes back and forth. On some level, I feel like Kiss has has become an institution, uh, like a pop culture institution, particularly in oh, our country. A doubt. Yeah, but I, I do still feel like, um, it, it, you know, again, it's not about being taken seriously necessarily, but that it's dismissed or oh, you know, I didn't know those guys were still around or you know that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, I think it's a great time to be a Kiss fan right now. I think. Um you know, if somebody's going to come right out and say, well, I didn't know those guys were still around, then I'm not sure what cave them and they've been sleeping in because um, everything, I mean, whether it be Paul's art, Gene's reality show, uh, Dr. Pepper, I was watching a football game on Thanksgiving and a Dr. Pepper commercial comes on. Um, Kiss is pretty far-reaching right now, and um, it, it's just the perfect dose. It's not a, it's not, not a burnout thing or anything. Um you know, so so no, nothing really surprises me. Like I said, I think it, it's a great time to be a Kiss fan right now. I think this tour was awesome. Um, I think there's a lot of optimism right now from fans. Sonic Boom was a success. The tour was a success. Uh, I think the thing that surprised me the most is I never dreamed these guys would be pushing 60, and we'd still have just as much fun as we did when, when they were in their 20s. Now, i gotta, I got to ask something, and Ken... I think you I think you might know where I'm going with this, but Bill Starkey, the founder of the Kiss Army, just said Sonic Boom was a success. Yeah. And exactly. I and I agree and you agree. And I think I, I I think you know what I'm what I'm where I'm going here based on like the kind of discussions that happen on the message boards and stuff. Yeah. For example, this week someone was saying that uh, Sonic Boom wasn't a, a, a success because as of this week it's it's not in the top two hundred albums that charted. Uh, but see, that's a totally different era that we're talking about right now. And I, exactly. I don't know that you can you can even. I, I I'm skeptical of even things where where I read from. Um, I forget the name of the company that does most of the concert attendance figures. I'm real skeptical of a lot of that stuff anymore because I think a lot of that can be 
manipulated in an artist's favor. You know, who has the hottest selling this or the most downloaded that. In this day and age, with all these different mediums and ways of acquiring music, I'm not sure that you can you can say what's a success and what isn't a success. I think what made Sonic Boom a success was that it was the kind of album the band wanted. A lot of the songs were, were, were good enough to be in concert. Um, I think the cool thing about all three of us, if we could all sit here and talk about our favorite Kiss albums, we'd probably all disagree. Right. Destroyer, Alive, the first one, whatever. And I would say Sonic Boom is right up there with the rest of them. It is a... Is it the greatest Kiss album they ever did? No, but I'm not sure we could even agree what the greatest Kiss album is any more than probably Beatles fans would agree on the best Beatles album. Now, I'm not comparing the two, but I'm showing you as far as longevity and the fan reaching and, and all that stuff. I, I You know, I, I think Sonic Boom was a success. Um, it, it, I don't judge it by Grammy nominations or anything like that. And trust me, I'm older than you guys, and... Uh, you know, we just, you just, I mean, there's a reason why they call it classic rock because it's, it's still there and it's still out there, and, and, and it still has an audience. And uh, the shows I saw this year proved it. Um, yeah, people were there to hear the music. Joe, you've been a fan since the '70s as well. I, I'm wondering, you know, when an album like Sonic Boom comes out in 2009, what, how do you, what's your rubric for whether or not it's a successful album? Well, I sort of judge it probably the way that KISS judges it, which is it's not about any one component of what they do, whether it's an album release or, you know, a tour or whatever. It's about awareness. Do people know that KISS is around? Just like what Bill said, they're ubiquitous in the culture now to such a point that, you know, it's, it's more than success. I mean, they're just part of popular culture in a way that probably no other band you know, no American band has ever been. Even bands that have sold way more records and had ma- way more hit singles and, you know, have better concert attendance, you know, they're still not a part of popular culture the way that Kiss is. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, aside from <laughs> the money, of course, that's what they judge as being a success. And right. they've achieved it, you know, in spades. Yeah, I have to agree. And Bill, you were saying in terms of the optimism within the fan base... Right. I mean, do you get a sense that Kiss themselves are, are, you know, kind of gearing up for another round or, you know, where oh, do you... Oh, yeah, s- I, I think they're a lot more comfortable. I think they're not in a desperate mode or anything like that where there's a lot of stuff that I think caused problems. Here's the way I would rate the, the, why, why I would consider Sonic Boom a success, because they tried to introduce a lot of those songs into their live repertoire, and they successfully did so. If they thought this were an album like The Elder or something like that, it'd probably go into the hole, and you'd probably probably never hear it. Yeah, it would have so been the swept they, under the they, carpet. Yeah, it, it, the, the fact that they they played it live, and they were confident enough to play it. I mean, let's face it, Modern Day Delilah was, was an opener, and it, it may be an opener for, for many years. Obviously, they were pretty proud of it. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't an album that they just used as, as an excuse to tour. Like you said, they opened with the, 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 the first song, and they played songs from the record. They they were confident that, that uh, of it representing them in, you know, present day yeah. plus yeah, the they're doing a follow-up paul paul did the producing they didn't get into any like where they had to get into a situation where they had to get a bob Ezin or somebody like that paul did the producing i, I don't I, I don't think that they i think they got everything out of what they wanted to do i mean the songwriting and all that i have to laugh because of the fans i was i read some of the fans comments about you know the the set list and things like that and yeah they try they, they're pretty conservative about a lot of stuff they do in some ways but uh, I can think there's a reason why. I think they're 
they're still trying to please their fan base. They're still trying to keep their fan base. And I, I don't think they've ever been in a better situation where musically you've got four people who are pretty darn good musicians. And, you know, even back in the 70s when I followed them, I'm sure there was a lot of problems with Peter and Ace. I mean, as far as, you know, who's calling the shots? You know, who's going to get, you know, whose songs are going to make the album? Whose songs won't make the album? You know, or I need to do this. You know, you're not going to see this crap where... Everybody needs to do their own solo album real soon. I really don't think that's going to happen, you know. Right. That could happen, but but it won't. It will be kept. It will happen on good terms. It won't happen on the fact that well, I don't like the way, the way the band is being, the vehicle that the band is has become right now. So I'm going to go off on a different tangent and all my, you know, I'd love to see some of Paul's Live to Win stuff play live, but somebody who I know that's pretty in with the band has told me that will never happen. And that's fine, but I love I loved that solo album. I thought it was was pretty great. And some people say, well, he did that because it's his album, but not necessarily a Kiss album. Yeah, you know, still. How? There are some songs in there I'd love to hear live. That's just me, though. Well, how is that any different than what they did in 1978? I mean, Paul did his Live to Win album, and it's, 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 you know, it's fine on its own, but uh, you, know, you, you might say, well, it couldn't possibly be played on a Kiss stage because it wasn't written with a Kiss stage in mind. Well, never was, you know, same with Gene doing uh, When You Wish Upon a Star. You know, oh, that was yeah. never considered to be right, right. on a Kiss stage, but yeah, yet well, some well, of those have... songs wound up on a Kiss stage. Yeah, I have issues with with somehow that some of that stuff works because, like I said, I'm old enough to remember that when that they would they said that Beth would never be played live, and I remember that. the fact that it had to be, or they'd never do a disco song, or then, or then even as as recently as saying that you know no one would ever do Beth other than Peter Chris. Um, if there's anything we truly love the most about our favorite band is that uh, <laughs> never say never. I mean what. What statement may be made may be contradicted down the road. And that's good for the fans. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Maybe that proves they're listening to the fans. Two it's- questions I'd like to, to bring up. One is, back in the day when Destroyer came out, Bill, I want to yes. know what your opinion was of it when you first heard it. And When it- I first heard it, I was blown away by it because I thought that would be the studio album that would get them... Accepted. On the, on, accepted. But later on in the tour, when that summer of 76 tour started, I think they were having trouble playing a lot of the stuff live, and it right. weren't real satisfied with the way it was supposed to come out. you got to remember they were trying to do this erratic or, or you know, this real radical stage show and all this stuff, and they would modify that and modify this. And then at the same time, they had a very hot opener by the name of Bob Seger opening up for them, too, which made things quite challenging on the road. So... I'm not. I I think that they they're playing Destroyer better now with this band than they originally played it back in the summer of '76 because I don't think they were sure. And see, that's why Rock and Roll Over. That's why I think they went back to that basic Rock and Roll Over yep. concept because of the pitfalls I think they thought they had with Destroyer. But I love the album. I thought that was going to get them lots of radio airplay, and I'm not sure that it got them as much as they should have. But I love that kind of stuff, you know. And I remember. I remember hearing Peter Chris when he was in Terre Haute telling a lot of us that when you hear this new album, it's going to be, he says, we're going to have choirs and bells and all this. Well, see, we were still getting used to Kiss Alive. Right. So to hear him say this stuff was going to happen, and we just couldn't believe it. So. Now, did you guys walk, I mean, from a, you know, from talking to Peter Chris and hearing that, did you walk away kind of privately to yourselves going, oh, 
what the hell's this all about? No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all, because you know what? I was a big Alice Cooper fan. Right. When I heard Bob Ezrin's name was mentioned, I had this certain standard for Bob Ezrin records that I thought I was going to like it no matter what. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, um, but I just think they had trouble pulling it off live in 76, and, and, and that's why they went back in the studio and did rock and roll over the way they did it, because... Uh, they realized that, you know, whatever you put here on vinyl, you better be able to produce it live or else. But, right. you know, there's still a lot of stuff on the Dispur. I think now they, 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 they know how to perform it live, whereas back in 76 with Ace and Peter, it was probably a different story. I think well, it's interesting that, that, that they were making records so fast back then that they were planning on rock and roll over before Beth even hit. So they were yeah. already kind of thinking, okay, we're going to... We're going to counter whatever backlash the fans had against Destroyer with this with Rock and Roll Over, and then Beth hit, and then Destroyer blew up. It's just interesting if they'd have maybe left a little more time, they might have felt a little bit differently. Who knows what kind of album we'd have gotten next? They might have thought, well, okay, so Destroyer is a big hit. That's that sort of overproduced, overblown well, rock sound is the way we should go. You know, you got to remember that when Kiss Alive came out, it was a totally different fan base. It was that definitely kind of like a the hardcore Metallica type of crowd that they had, the real true headbangers. Kiss shows back then were dangerous. So then they go from that to the poly sound of Destroyer with the vocals and all that. You know, it's, that's really something different for your fans to accept. So, you know, some say, well, did they abandon those headbanging, hang, headbanging fans? Maybe not. I think it just maybe opened up the door for new fans because I have a friend of mine who who um, who's a big rhythm and blues fan and it, the story is his favorite all one of his favorite <laughs> all-time kiss albums so nice you know they reached out and they grabbed other fans well we're going to hear more of that music later on in the show because what i'd like to do now is kind of turn our attention turn our focus a little bit toward this time of year right so we've got you know four kiss fans or i should say three kiss fans and and the commander-in-chief here and <laughs> <laughs> and and Salute. what Indeed. What what I want to do is kind of go through December or great moments in uh, in history that take place around Kissmas time. And I figure between the four of us, we'll probably be able to reconstruct some awesome memories. So, Bill, you and I were talking very briefly yesterday about some of that. Your your first two Kiss concerts were around this time of year. Is that right? Right. December the 8th uh, on a Sunday night. Uh, much like this interview, in Evansville, Indiana, with uh, Point Blank, ZZ Top, and Kiss. And, of course, uh, Kiss played in the middle of that set. And um, then I, it was really cool. It was my father taking me to my first show and, and my younger brother. And he dared my mother, after they found out Kiss was going to play the convention center in Indianapolis, told her, you know, you know, you got to go see these guys. You know, and this is from my father, who was... <laughs> Somebody who listened to Sinatra and Mario Lanza, but he loved Kiss's uh, stage appearance and the way they, the enthusiasm and everything that they they performed with. That nice. he talked my mom into taking us to the second Kiss show, which was December the twenty eighth up here, which used to be an annual thing up here in Indianapolis called the Christmas Jam. That uh, it was held in between New Year's and Christmas, and uh, it was a huge extravaganza of bands from Ario Speedwagon to uh, San Francisco band Quicksilver Messenger Service, a band out of Atlanta called Hydra. Rush was supposed to be there, but they did not show. 
And um, there were a lot of obscure bands because I don't even remember the names of a lot of them because I don't remember that the, the bands even introduced themselves. But the headliner was Ario Speedwagon, and and um, uh, the the amazing thing about that show was uh, after Ario played, everybody left, and I remember their lead singer saying, "Stay tuned for Kiss." Well, we had been there since five o'clock in the afternoon when the concert began, and. This was well after midnight, and I'll never forget 12.30 Sunday morning, Paul Stanley yells, hey, Indianapolis, better late than never. And, of course, Kiss gets up there and just performs like they normally would. And, uh, of course, my mom wouldn't let us stay for the whole show because it was getting close to well past 1 o'clock. And my dad was babysitting my younger sister out in the car. And this was, it was cold outside and everything. So, But, you know, it was my second show. And... Um, that was the show that kind of helped me go back to Terre Haute and, like, say, you know, uh, I've seen them twice now, and it's not a fluke. These guys really do put out. I mean, it's incredible.
shortly thereafter, I'm guessing, the KISS Army started. Yeah, well, after that, it was pretty much the groundwork with me and Jay, but we weren't really moving until April, which was like four months or so after that, where we convinced a lot of them, including Jay, to go to their first KISS show. Joe, were you a member of the KISS Army uh, You know, back I, in the uh, 70s? I, 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 was, I was young enough to think that I, I didn't think I was old enough to be in the Army, to be perfectly honest. To be perfectly honest, right? I knew about it, and I thought, "Wow, one day, one day, I'll be able to be in the Kiss Army." That's that's absolutely how I thought about it. Right. But it was something that you had to sort of grow into. Your first uh, your first Kiss record was uh, Destroyer. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so you- and it, of course, it had the big Kiss Army banner inside the you know the sleeve, uh, which they presented completely out of context. I mean, there was no real. It wasn't really an ad for it. It was just a graphic. Yeah in the album and I was just like that is pretty cool right but you know being you know seven years old it was just it was beyond me this was actually something that you could you know be a part of yeah for me it was all kind of working backwards I got I got my first Kiss record in like either 80 81 and it was the Gene Simmons solo album so you know and it was on vinyl it had all that cool merchandising uh, stuff on the inside merchandising and um I'm pretty sure it, it might have had something about the Kiss Army. I, I don't. I don't remember for sure, but you know, there was no way to join it. I, I think by that point, 1981, right? It, it was gone, right, Bill? Right. Yeah. 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 Yes. It it was gone, and um, that the cool thing was that though is that uh, then other fans picked up the ball and did their own little fanzines and all that. And oh that, yeah. I think it's kind of a neat era. Oh yeah. I mean, that's that was sort of where I was growing up with Kiss was, you know, 80s when, you know, if you found a cool record store, you could find those fanzines, and that was a great time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, go, moving moving forward, I guess, you know, from 1974, 1975, um, and going up to 76, right? So we were talking earlier about that transition from Destroyer to Rock and Roll Over, and one of the recordings that I wanted to play comes from December 2nd, of 1976, so right around this time of year that we're recording this, and it's from Memphis, Tennessee, and, and the reason I want to play it is it's one of the first uh, concerts on the Rock and Roll Over Tour, and it has this performance of Hard Luck Woman. Now, what you're going to be hearing is not the greatest sound quality, but it's such a gem, I figured we had to play it anyway, so here you go.
Anyone here ever hear that before? Has anyone heard Hard Luck Woman live in the 70s? I, well, I heard, I've heard, I've seen that or heard that clip before. Right. I never saw it live. I, I saw the Rock and Roll Over tour, and I don't remember that ever being played. At least at the show you were at. Right, at any of the shows that I was at. So, <clears throat> uh, matter of fact, I, I, I do remember it getting some radio airplay, though. <clears throat> The, the, rock yeah, and, the rock and roll over stage was like destroyer light. Yeah. Did it feel like that going from, you know, one tour to the next, Bill? Yeah, it was. I mean, when you consider some of the excess and some of the stuff they were trying to do with destroyer, I mean, um, we, we were kind of scratching our heads, kind of figuring, because originally we were told that the set was supposed to look like a destroyed city, like it's on the cover of destroyer, and it never ended up being like that at all. Right. And um, so, yeah, it, it, there was definitely a big change. But um, and then for the next tour, even less so. I mean, you know, because Destroyer had the had a had a kind of paired. The Destroyer tour was like a pared down or scaled down version of, of that. What you'd been sort of promised, like it's going to look like a destroyed city. And it kind of right, did. Right. But then, now, you wait know, a second. If you listen to anybody on any message board, you will hear that the Kiss stages back in the 70s were the biggest, the best, <laughs> top of the line. They got right. bigger every year. Are you trying to tell me that the Rock and Roll Over tour was kind of like, eh? Well, you stage wise? They, they played a lot of places uh, that were small. I mean, yep. that they were very devoted to, like in Evansville, uh, where I'd saw them before. and. <laughs> And mm-hmm. they, I think they ended up playing Evansville nine times since since now and, and Terre Haute. So those are relatively 10,000 feet small places. And they were playing more stadiums, if you look back in the itineraries. In. Mm-hmm. And um, not quite as many stadiums uh, with the rock and roll over uh, set. So, you know, um, yeah, they were doing, uh, they were doing this. I think they did Anaheim and uh, outdoors and stuff like right. that when they were doing Destroyer. But, uh, and they bypassed Terre Haute. So when Kiss would when they would get when Kiss Terrell would get Kiss again, it would be during the Rock and Roll Over tour. And uh, you know, at that time, guys, you got to understand that's when Kiss broke so big. And I remember I was fortunate enough to be still going backstage and things like that. That they were doing interviews with like Playboy magazine and, and people like that. It was beyond the music business. I right. mean, they were already being like I said. I, I'll never forget uh, Gene or, or Paul, one of the two, stopping talking because they said well no, now's the time you have to interview with somebody and it had nothing to do with music mm-hmm. and i thought man had these guys arrived or what because you know it just it was just incredible and i was getting less and less free time with them so and that was kind of frustrating with me but that's the what happens when you're when the band gets it's just so huge right, right. i think the thing about the stage shows too you got to remember you know, Destroyer, the Destroyer set was this kind of big, sprawling set. It had a lot of props and a lot of visual things that just sat there. They were, you know, set pieces. Right. Now, you could say that, you know, Rock and Roll Over and the Love Gun stages were more pared down, but the money they spent was in the stage itself. It became more state-of-the-art with the risers mm-hmm. and, the you know, the, the, the platforms that rose and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you... It wasn't visually as arresting as seeing the Destroyer stage, but I think those stages were, you know, way more expensive, and uh, they put a lot more sort of uh, gadgets and and tricks into the stage itself. 
Now, I'm not sure how many or if there were any risers during the Rock and Roll Over tour. I don't think there were. I mean, the drum yeah. rise, that's it. Yeah. Right, right. I was going to say, when you talk about risers, I mean... They got to Japan, and, and it was sort of like a transition to the Love Gun stage, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right. And, and you had the staircases, but you also had, I think, the... Or maybe this didn't happen in Japan, but, but by the time it was the Love Gun tour, it was the... Um, I guess like the little elevators that brought them down at the beginning of the show. Right, right, right yeah. Now I have. A... I think they wanted to try a destroyer, but they couldn't because you remember they used to uh, open up on top of the amplifiers. They had like these catwalks right. mm-hmm. on top of their amps, and then the, the amps were supposed to be covered by like um, you know uh, sets from like a destroyed city or something. Yeah. And they changed. It changed every show during that tour, though. It was almost like they had these pieces of a puzzle that they didn't quite know how to make work yeah. or put together. Yeah, because if you go through some old interviews and stuff, um, Gene was supposed to have like a, uh, all kinds of stuff on his side of the stage, like um, something that would uh, breathe fire for him and... and uh, like blood coming down. The... Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, was, it was just crazy. I mean... Because I've seen pictures... There's, there's, there are photos I've seen, photos, some of the photos I've seen, there's like something that looks almost like a, I don't know if it's like, it looks like a lava lamp. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and don't forget there is like these tentacles oh, that yeah. kind of went across the stage, but all that wound up happening was the band tripping over them, pretty much. Well, and I remember um, a guy complaining because, you know, Peter had these two huge cats on either side of his... Um, drum set and the, the, they were I remember when they performed here in Indianapolis and the disc jockey uh, he, he was kind of feuding with me anyhow and he came back to Terre Haute and he complained and said well uh, we ought to be glad that Kiss isn't coming back to Terre Haute because uh, I just saw the Destroyer thing and it's all a bunch of hooey and uh, I couldn't even see Peter Chris because he had these two big cats in front of him and blah 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 and, and really it was just a ploy for the guy to get an interview with the band which I eventually set up for him because um, he would did it under the pretense that, well, the reason why kids didn't come in here and did, un, under the Destroyer tour is because they're too big for Terre Haute, and, which was just totally nonsense, and you know, but that's another story. Man, that's some, that's some bitterness right there, right? Well, I had two radio stations at that time in Terre Haute that were competing. Both were classic rock, and there was WBTS, the one I petitioned, and WPFR, who was the, was the upstart, and um, I remember when they gave me a plaque on stage, they gave a plaque to Terre Haute. Well, the guy that accepted the plaque for Terre Haute was the program director for VTS. Well, the guy from PFR gets mad. Well, where's our plaque at? And I'm like, <laughs> they didn't give the station a plaque. They gave the, 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 the arena a plaque. You know right, what I mean? Right. That's the kind of nonsense that I had to deal with. And, of course, I was young and naive enough to think that, I could do anything about it, you know, like that was my job or something. <laughs> Bill, let me no, ask you. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Were these both FM stations? Excuse me? Were these both FM stations or were these AM yes, stations? Yes, they were both FM stations. Okay. As a matter of fact, to get on AM, you had to be really super popular. Yeah. And it kiss, eventually Kiss would, but not till about 77. And I don't, Bill, to sort of change gears for a second, I don't know if, if are you into comic books at all? Not really, no. I, I I grew up with them a lot. You know the the the, the Spider Man, you know Superman, Stan Lee stuff. Yeah, I mean Fantastic Four, but that's about it for me. You know because that that's you know from the '60s to the early '70s. Right, because you know for me, I mean, get, 
comic books are part of why I'm into Kiss in the first place. And I know Ken is a big comic book fan and a great artist as well. And Joe, you 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 write comic books. Joe, let me ask you this: it, it, as we're talking about the stage design and the and the kind of thematic conceptual piece of it, is there a um, is there a point at which it, if they went too heavily into it, it would be overkill? Or do you ever feel like it's not enough? In terms of what the, the just the stage shows and and how well, comic you could get, or what do you mean? Well, yeah, I guess I'm thinking in terms of um, you know Destroyer sort of promised a certain kind of thematic thing, and then the Revenge stage has a certain look and a, and a you know a thing that it was trying to do, and ever since the reunion, you know, invariably with every new stage and every new show, there's something there's someone that says. You know, they're not really capitalizing on the fact that these are like larger than life superhero characters. What what about more effects? What about like a space uh, uh, section of the stage and doing kind of more like gothic stuff for Gene, blah, blah, blah? Yeah, I find that, I mean, personally, I find things like the Destroyer stage and the Revenge stage and the Hot in the, sta- uh, hot in the Shade stage really almost too theatrical. There's, they're too kind of themed they're too broadway bound in a way you know mm-hmm. and i tend to like the streamlined you know i mean it's the, it, it's the more sort of sleek and chrome proscenium so they can just do their thing i mean, I, I, I just they're not superheroes they're they're sort of mythic figures but i don't want to see them you know flying around or shooting laser beams out of their eyes on stage i mean i just <laughs> i'd rather hear them play a deep album cut than you know watch you know paul try to you know, do ride a unicorn. Yeah. Ride a unicorn on a rainbow bridge. uh, (laughs) Eugene will come in on a ring of fire, things like that. Uh, It's really, you know, I mentioned the the stage uh, sparsity, if you will, of uh, the rock and roll over uh, tour. But like when you hear guys on message boards, like they'll, they'll talk about the last tour and like that stage was nothing. It looked like crap. It was massive. It was amazing. It was massive. Those screens blew me away, and and the stuff they were able to do with them. Me too, because I thought it was very economical, and yet at the same time, very functional. And, um, you know, I I like the the idea of uh, all these amplifiers as far as, as high up as you can see, when probably only like one or two of them are actually turned on. Yeah, I mean, I still love it. And, And I don't think they do nearly enough with video that they could do. Right. Well, like, for example, on the Psycho Circus tour, uh, when you'd see the car and, uh, you know, the skeleton and all that stuff, it was just kind of like, eh, that, I'm, I'm here to see Kiss. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I understand that part of it. Because yeah. they are the special effect. Right. Whereas, like, uh, again, talking about discussions of the stages on message boards, people say, well, Kiss was really dark and sinister and the, the original stage they had, and it was, it was, it was a candelabra. Hang on one second, guys. One second. You should have some Jeopardy music playing or something. Yeah, really. <laughs> Bill, it's a real honor to uh, talk to you. I've I've met you at an expo, and it's it's really neat to. Uh, what expo? Uh, I think it was one of the Cleveland ones. Wow. Yeah, that's been a while back. Yeah, it's been a while. What's this? I've, it's none of your business, Gary Schaller. I think you should play. I think you should play like love theme from Kiss in these moments. Eh? Yes. 
No, really. It's a good idea. Because uh, that's what the that's what the disc jockey used to do to torment us at the Kiss Army. He would play uh, the instrumental, and then he would say, "See, you guys wanted Kiss," and then he'd laugh and hang up on us. Oh, wow. Well, I, hey, I mean, he was a pretty clever guy. I mean, someone needs an ass whooping right there. I'll tell you what. Yeah, well, he's he's laughing today still about it. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> he, he's he's trying to tell me though that. Uh, he knew all along Kiss was going to be big, so I don't know. Uh-huh. I sometimes wonder if he's telling me the truth or not. Yeah, the world <laughs> may never know. Yeah, but, the world uh, will never know. But we were talking about the stages. You know, they talk about how sinister and how cool the stage was, and they had a candelabra on the stage. Right. You know, that's not very, uh, you know, it's... It, it's High like, tech. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And the Destroyer stage was a great idea, but, like, I think a lot of that came from Bob Ezrin because I've heard Bob yeah. Ezrin say he tried to build something for each performer, and they would have their moment on the stage. And I think that it's it's almost like if, if Ezrin would have continued with him, he might have been able to make that Destroyer stage come alive. But, like, uh, our, our good friend Joe Casey said, it's a little more Broadway-ish then. Um, Alice yeah. Cooper uses those props and it's great yeah but i don't want to see like gene simmons have like 12 little dwarfs running around him and a great big toothbrush and right minion <laughs> i want to ask i want to ask bill something he was bringing talking about the video screens and stuff because back in the day when i i first saw them in 79 i you know my, my dad took me we brought binoculars wow I was just curious if, if that was just, I don't know, if we were the weirdos or if that was something that people did. I mean, Kiss was a band that you wanted to see. And if you're in the nosebleeds with no video screens in the 70s, you know, I was just wondering if anybody else, like, brought the brought their binocs just to, you know, get a better look. No, because I was always lucky that they gave me good tickets. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want to brag, but, you know, <laughs> I was always lucky in that respect. Now, one time I did see them... Uh, in January, when the light tower fell in Evansville, and that was pretty scary, and I was glad I was away from this stage then because uh, that was pretty scary because uh, that's back when they were trying to use add different lighting, and they were using these aluminum lifts that you use that you would see back in the old days where they would change the lights in gymnasiums. You know, where that's how they, the only way they could change the lights in the gymnasium. That's a big white gymnasium. Yeah, that's right. That's what Gene always says. And and they would use these things on either side of the stage, and one of them buckled and just about hit the band. It was it was awful. I mean, Oof. they had to stop the show, and, I, and you didn't know if the guy had lived or died. I mean, they, they actually drove the ambulance right up to the backstage area through the back door and took the guy out, and then the band opened up with rock and roll like it never happened. It was amazing that they just, just carried on. I mean, you know, like, as far as I know, the guy lived, but, man, wow. it was scary. And this was Evan- Evansville what year? Uh, it was the year that the... Uh, it was also a strange evening because it was the night that... Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the rock group Chicago, but it was the night that Terry Kath, their lead guitar player, uh, put a gun to his mouth and wow. committed suicide. So I think it was like January 22nd or 20... Somewhere in there, about, I think, 78. And um, it was, again, it was a snowy night and in Evansville, and uh, I'll just never forget. The only time I really saw anything go really, really bad at a show, you know, where the show had to be stopped for like 30 or 40 minutes, and 
you know, the lights come back on and, you know. You know what? I actually, this is such a great book. I don't, I'm, if, I'm sure everybody has it. And everybody who's listening, if you don't have it, go buy it. It's just, God, what a great book. The Kiss Alive Forever book by uh, right. Kurt Gooch and Jeff Sues. I mean, whew, what a great book. And January 23rd, 1978, Evansville, Indiana. Man, Bill, your memory is ridiculous. It's great. Uh, well, you, uh, you forget that weird stuff. You know what I mean? No, no, no. It's, it's just incredible. Like, it, it, when I say ridiculous, I mean awe-inspiring. That you remembered the date is just awesome. I mean, so here's what it says about it. Uh, in the middle of the concert, the front stage, the front stage right lighting rig support collapsed. Show was interrupted for approximately 30 minutes. Uh, spotlight operator Thomas Mills, 26, fell from the rig to the floor, but did not sustain serious injuries. Um, and when the when Kiss reappeared after the delay, they jump started the show with Deuce. Paul remarked, "Since you." Since you people... Have, no, I won't do it. Since you people have been so patient... <laughs> but it sounded so good, Gary. All right, since you people have been so patient, we got something we haven't done in a long time. You want to hear it? You can find that on YouTube, and the best part about that is that Ace doesn't remember the guitar solo, so he's just kind of jamming in that middle section. It's great. Dude, you've got to play this. All right, here it is.
Hi, everybody. This is Lisa Jane Persky, Dirty D from Kiss Meets the Phantom at the Park, and I'd like to say hi to everyone around the world in Australia, in Japan, in Malmo. Is anyone in Malmo? Um, and uh, I hope everybody's happy to listen to podcast. I want to go back to 1977, actually, for a minute. There we go. Uh, because one of the cool recordings that circulated a few years ago when, when it came out on uh, Kissology is that Largo 77 show, which this is a great way to showcase the Alive 2 uh, show and the Alive 2 stage and all of that. Um, and, you know, one of the songs that wasn't on Kissology is King of the Nighttime World. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of that song. It, when I saw them on the reunion tour and Ace knelt down by those amplifiers and all that feedback came out, it was just, it was breathtaking. And I want to maybe give this a listen and see what you guys think. Hi, this is Ace Frilly, and I'd like to wish you a happy holiday. <laughs> 